So we're continuing on in our, our Servant King series. We're, we're looking at Mark chapter 8. We've been working our way through the, the book of Mark. Um, we're going to, um, yeah, we're uh, going to be looking at chapter 8, verses 1 through 21 this morning. So several, there's several different stories we're looking at there. Last week, uh, Simon, our student ministry director, uh, he preached on uh, Mark chapter 7. He did an excellent job. Um, I wasn't here, but I was able to catch the podcast, and I'm so grateful for, for his stepping into that and, uh, and sharing, uh, sharing his teaching gift with us. And so, um, so I'm, I'm going to continue on here, uh, looking at chapter 8. Um, speaking of imperfect, I want to share with you a story from this past week about my imperfection, actually, that plays right into what Jesus is teaching about in this passage and what Mark wants us to understand from these, these passages. So my wife is out of town right now. She left Thursday night. She comes back at dinner time tonight. I'm counting down the hours. Um, uh, no, I love my kids. I love being with my kids. Um, we, we trade off like this with some different... Uh, her work takes her away on weekends, that kind of stuff, and, and, and I do the same, but uh, I, I love spending time with my kids, but it's super challenging, man. Four, I got four kids. That's a lot of kids, uh, and so it's, it's hard stuff, and, so, um, and I appreciate my wife so much more than I ever did before when I got to do the single dad thing, right? Um, so so just, uh, just the other day, Friday night, um, so I'm at home, been doing the whole, you know, watching the kids thing, and, and, uh, and, and the toilet was clogged up Friday afternoon. And so I got the plunger and I started plunging the toilet and it was not going down. I was like, this is a stubborn clog. This is just not going down. What's going on here? And so I, I, I plunged aggressively for a while because when I meet a problem, I just keep powering through. That's what I do in life, right? But anyway, so, uh, so <laughs> keep plunging, keep plunging, and it goes down. But it's still not quite going down the way it's supposed to. It's going down faster, but we're not getting the full swirl, you know? And so, so, uh, so, so anyway, so, uh, so we so plunge it. It's, it's good enough. And so then... I think it's, it's, it's okay, you know, we'll just let it sit for a little longer. A couple hours later, one of the kids goes to the bathroom and, uh, and says, Dad, the toilet's clogged. So I'm back in there plunging this thing, and now I'm getting frustrated. So now I'm like, okay, something's really wrong here. And I start to think, did these kids, did these kids use wipies again, putting, flushing wipies down the toilet? Because we've had that problem before, in the closet of the toilet. Or are they using too much toilet paper? And then I even said, oh, Lisa switched our toilet paper. It's this new toilet paper that my wife bought. That must be the problem here. And so I'm finding blame. I'm looking for blame, right? I'm looking, looking for it. But I'm plunging the toilet. It, it, I got it cleared again. And then Saturday morning, sure enough, it's clogged again. Um, and I'm like, I don't understand what's going on here. And then I'm thinking, okay, something must be in there. Something must have happened. Uh, so I had a friend over uh, Saturday, uh, hanging out, helping out with the kids, and, and, uh, and Saturday afternoon, um, he, I said, will you give me a hand looking at this thing? I've been plunging this thing. I can't, you know, something's happened here. He's like, well, maybe one of the kids flushed something down the toilet. I'm like, I already asked. They didn't say it. They said they didn't do it, right? But who knows? Who knows, right? And so, so we start... I get the snake and I'm rotting the toilet, right? And, and I, can't get it, I can't get it in. So I'm like, something's really wrong. Now I can't get the snake to, to you know, feed through the bend like that. that why do they design toilets that way? I don't understand that. But anyway, can't get the snake through there. And again, just more force. Just keep pushing, keep pushing. It'll go. And it's not going. So my friend says, I think we need to take the toilet off. Uh, I'm like, well, then we got to get a new wax ring. That's a big mess. And so he's like, I think, I think we're going to need to take the toilet off. And so, so sure enough, we, we end up taking the toilet off and... What do we find? This little guy. That's Thomas the tank engine right there, guys. Thomas does not like being in the toilet, and I don't like Thomas being in the toilet. It's, very, it's been cleaned, but I'm not going to touch it anymore, all right? So Thomas the tank engine was causing the problem, right? No amount of force was going to fix this problem. No amount of me applying pressure was going to change it. 
what needed to happen was we needed to remove the toilet to get this thing off. It was not going to ha- change. It was not going to get fixed any other way. And so when I started thinking about this, when, I, when we pulled that toilet off and I saw that, I just laughed so hard. I laughed so hard because somebody did put something on the toilet, right? But who did it? My 18-month-old. He's 18 months. He doesn't know any better. I mean, this is a fun thing. Things go down and disappear, right? So let's, so 18 months, I can't blame him. I can blame the 10-year-old. If she flushed the toy down the toilet, she knows, but, right? But there's nobody to blame here except for myself, except for myself. This happened Friday afternoon on my watch. We have a rule. Dad stated the rule. We keep the bathroom door closed because the baby flushes stuff down the toilet, right? We keep the bathroom door closed. Guess what happened Friday afternoon? I left the bathroom door open (laughs) and the baby flushed Thomas the Tank Engine down the toilet. That was me. I'm responsible for this problem. But you know what? It was a lot easier to look out and say, one of you kids did this wrong or Lisa, you brought the wrong toilet paper. That's the problem, right? It's a lot easier to look external and say, that's the problem. When internally, it was actually where the problem was. It was with me. I had responsibility for this. It was my choice to leave the door open that led to this mistake, to led to this, this problem that happened. And so I wonder, can you relate to that? Can you relate to encountering a problem in life and believing the answer is external? The answer is if they just did something different or if they just behaved differently, then this problem would be okay. Maybe at work, there's a project that didn't finish on time and your thought is, if that coworker would have just done their job, then we would have been fine. Or somebody that works for you, if they would have just met their deadline, then I wouldn't be behind and we would have been able to go to, go to production with this thing, right? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever considered maybe that there's a part of yourself, there's, there's a responsibility for yourself in this? Maybe you didn't check in enough. Maybe you didn't set clear enough goals. Maybe you were just behind and you weren't on top of it and that's why you're late. But looking at yourself to say, how did I contribute to this problem? Is there something for me to take responsibility for here? Or maybe in your marriage. Maybe you fall into the trap of thinking, our marriage would be a lot better if she just acted this way. Or he just acted this way. If he would show up this way, then we would be better off. Instead of looking at yourself and saying, how do I contribute to this problem? What responsibility do I have here? It's a lot easier and it's a lot more comfortable to say the problem's out there. But I think truly our deeper problems are actually in here. They're with us. And that's what Jesus is getting at here in this passage today. That there's a condition of the heart here for these, for these Pharisees and, and that, that we're, we're going we're gonna to see him interact uh, with. There's a problem here that they had that they were saying the problem's external, but really the problem was internal. And so as we look at Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21, I'd like to pray once again. So would you join me in prayer as we, as we turn to God's word to see what, what it has to say for, this, for us this morning. Father, we pause again before you. Um, yeah, we get, we're gathered here as a family of believers. We're gathered here as people who, who love you and want to worship you and, and, and grow as we look at your word together. And so, Father, we invite you to teach us. We invite you to illuminate your word to us, that it would, it would make sense to us, and that we would be able to open our hearts and minds for what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21, uh, the, whole, the text is not going to appear up on the screen, just like highlights of it are. And so if you want to follow along, and I encourage you to, I invite you to open your own Bible or pull up uh, the, the Bible app. Um, but uh, I'll read, um, read uh, the whole passage, but like I said, sections will appear up on the screen. So we're going to walk through this. About this time, another large crowd had gathered, and the people ran out of food again. 
Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here with me for three days and they have nothing left to eat. So I'm going to pause there for a second. So we've got this story of Jesus and his disciples. They're gathered here with a, with a group of people. We actually learn that it's 4,000 people. Um, and it says that a large crowd has gathered again. This happens with Jesus often. Large crowds, you know, follow, you know come around him, follow him. Uh, and we've seen that over and over again in Mark. A uh, large crowd gathers. And it says they're out of food again, right? So this isn't like, like hey, you know, this, this is the feeding of the 4,000. That's the miracle we're looking at right here. This is different from the feeding of the 5,000, right? It's not like Mark just like forgot or like that he said that already um, or like, like you know, kind of had a memory lapse here and is writing the story again. That's not what's going on here. This is a different miracle, all right? And so this large crowd is gathered again and they've run out of food again. Feeding of the 5,000 was primarily to a Jewish audience, it was in an area where there was uh, largely a Jewish population. So there would have been Gentiles in, in the crowd, non-Jews. That's what we, mean, we say, Gentile, that's what we mean. There would have been in the crowd, but, but largely it was a Jewish area, a Jewish population. So this one, the feeding of the 4,000, is in primarily a Gentile area. And so it's likely there were some Jews in the mix, but this was primarily a place that did not have a Jewish heritage, did not have Jew, uh, Jewish be, uh, believers. Uh, and so here we have Jesus feeding this 4,000. And we see here in verse 2, um, I see this over and over again in the book of Mark, we see the compassion of Jesus. He says in verse 2, I feel sorry for these people. They've been here with me for three days and they have nothing left to eat. I feel sorry for these people. Now the translation there kind of sounds like I have pity on these people, these poor pitiful people, right? That's not, that's not the, 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 the full meaning of what he's saying here. What he's saying is I'm sad for them. This is a bad situation they're in. I have compassion for them. And we see Jesus saying this to his disciples, helping them, cluing them into the fact that he cares for these people deeply and he wants to fix his problem for them. And so it's a teaching moment for his disciples as they see the compassion of Jesus. And significant because this compassion is being shown to Gentiles. Something that would have been foreign to these Jewish disciples, that he's, he's, this group that he's gathered around him. They would have been like, okay, yeah, we have compassion on our own people, our own family members, right? But like, these people are outsiders. And, and, and I think that that's significant because the disciples, they don't quite get it, what's going on here, right? Jesus has fed the 5,000. They were there for that. And now, let's pick it up in verse 3. Let's see, let's see how they respond to this. Jesus says, you know, if I send them away hungry, they're going you know, to faint along the way. Uh, for some of them have come a, come a long distance. His disciples replied, how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? Seven loaves, they replied. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves, thanked God for them, and broke them into pieces. He gave them to his disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. A few small fish were found too. So Jesus also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. And then verse 8 and 9. They ate as much as they wanted. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were about 4,000 people in the crowd that day, and Jesus sent them home after they had eaten. And so here we have the disciples. They've seen him feed the 5,000, and yet here they are with this 4,000, and they're like, well, what are we going to do, Jesus? Like, what, we, we don't have any food for these people. What are we going to do? It's like, hey, remember what just happened? Remember what I did just a little while ago? That was just, you know, not that long ago that this happened, right? They, 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 but they're not remembering that. They're not keeping that in front of them. And significant that this is a Gentile audience. He's like, yeah, you fed this Jewish people. That makes sense, taking care of our own, but these are outsiders. But Jesus steps in and takes care of it. His compassion on these people, and he takes care of their problem. He's been feeding them spiritually because they spent three days learning from them, from him. But then he, he feeds them physically as well. Feeds, takes care of their physical needs. 
And we see here in this miracle, we see that Jesus makes it clear that there's room at the table for everyone. There's no such thing as an outsider when it comes to Jesus. There is room. We are all welcome. Everyone is welcome at his table. There's room at the table for everyone. So remember back to chapter 7 that Simon preached on last week. There was a story of this, this outsider, this Syrophoenician woman, right? And she comes to Jesus. She's an outsider. She's not like, like, like she's a way outsider, right? And so, um, and, and she comes to Jesus and, and, and she says, you know, can, you know, can you help me? My daughter is demon-possessed. Will you help me? Can you, uh, can you ca- uh, save my daughter, right? And, and Jesus says, well, it's my job to f- take care of my family first, right? We, you know, I'm, I'm here, you got to teach the, the Jewish people first, right? And she says, she says, well, even the dogs get the scraps that the kids don't eat, right? And, and he, he, he says, you know, uh, go, your daughter's healed. I, you know, I'll, I'll t- I bless you. I'm taking care of your situation. I'm helping you, right? And so, he, so what he's saying here in the feeding of the 4,000, Mark, Mark is helping us clue, cluing into the fact that there's no dogs. There's no outsiders. We're all welcome at the table. Everyone is welcome at Jesus' table. And so he's, he's making this very powerful statement and, 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 and linking these dots for us around this feeding of the, uh, the 4,000 here, this, this Gentile audience. And so it's a bold statement that places Gentiles at the table. And I think that there's such a powerful, uh, powerful thought here to the fact that there are no outsiders, that all are welcome. In Jesus, in Jesus, at Jesus' table, right? First John 2, 2 says, He himself is a sacrifice that atones for all sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. The gates have been flung wide open, and Jesus says, everyone is welcome. Everyone can come. So we have here that Jesus making this statement about, about the Gentiles being welcome at the table. And so let's continue on here, because right after he feeds these 4,000, uh, and this, this crowd, is, 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 he sends them home. Then it says immediately after this, verse 10, immediately after this, he got into a boat with his disciples and crossed over to the region of Dalmanutha. I don't know exactly where that is, but we understand that it is a primarily Jewish play, audience, right? So he's going back to kind of the hometown area, primarily Jewish. Verse 11, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived, they came and started to argue with him, testing him. They demanded that he show them a sign from heaven to prove his authority. So here he lands, and they ambush him, demanding a miraculous sign from heaven. These Pharisees, Jesus has just done this, this this amazing miracle. It's unclear whether or not they knew that that had happened, but they're catching wind of this guy who's changing the cultural dynamic and welcoming outsiders and Gentiles and that kind of thing, and they, they demand a sign from Jesus. They ambush him for this. Now, it's interesting to me that they ask for a sign from heaven, because he had done many miracles. Some of them may have even witnessed these miracles. We, we're not exactly sure what, what group of people this is. It's Pharisees, but there's clearly evidence of Jesus' uh, you know, divinity, of, uh, evidence of his ministry right? that's, that's happening. Miracles that accompanied his teaching you know, as, he, as he blessed people and cared for people and, and healed people and all that kind of stuff. Right? And so, but they say, show us a sign from heaven. The wording there is actually some kind of cosmic sign. Some kind of sign of the end times. They're not just asking him for a, a simple miracle of, of healing, right? If we say that's a simple miracle. What they're saying is, show us that the end time is here. That you are the conquering king, Messiah. That you have come to overthrow our enemies. They're saying, we hear all this stuff with the Gentiles going on here. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to be about. The Messiah is supposed to come in and destroy our enemies and establish our reign and, and bring peace. And so when they say, show us a sign from heaven, they're not just looking for a simple miracle. They're saying, Jesus, you don't fit in the box that we believe you should fit in. 
So are you really this Messiah? Because if you are, you should fit in this box. This is what he's supposed to do. They didn't quite understand. They didn't quite understand that Jesus wasn't here as a conquering king this time. He says he's going to come back as a conquering king, but he came as a servant king this time, as a suffering servant. And so we have these Pharisees who are asking for this sign. They don't understand what Jesus is about. And Jesus responds to them. He says this in verse 12. When he heard this, he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth. I will not give this generation any such sign. I will not give this generation any such sign. So when we understand what they were really asking for, that makes Jesus' words make a lot more sense here. Because he continues his ministry and he does miracles. He does signs, right? They're continued. That happens, right? So so how is it, I'm not going to give them a sign, but then he continues to do this. Well, because they were looking for a specific sign. They were looking for something cosmic about the end of the world and the conquering king that's coming. And he says, I'm not going to do that. That's not what I'm here for. That's not what I'm about. And so he's, he, he, uh, he's provided plenty of signs, and they're not seeing it. They're not willing to see it. The problem for them is external. Jesus, you don't fit in this box. You're not doing what you're supposed to. If you do what you're supposed to, then I'll believe. Well, Jesus sees the condition of their heart is actually the problem, that their problem is internal. It's not about Jesus and how he shows up. Any number of miracles he could do was not going to get him there. It wasn't about that. It was the condition of their heart and their unbelief. But you notice in, this, in his response in verse 12, it says that he sighed deeply in his spirit. Again, do you see the compassion of Jesus? He sighed deeply in his spirit. That's the same word that was used for the healing of the deaf and mute man at the end of chapter 7 that we, we, just, we just looked at last week. It says that he touched this man and he looked up to heaven and he sighed and he prayed, be open. Open, open this man's mouth. Loose, be loose, right? Open so he could speak and he could see, right, hear, right? Uh, and so, so anyway, so we have this, this sighing, right, as he's approaching this man. And so notice we've seen the compassion of Jesus towards Gentiles as he's compassionate towards them and their, and their need and, uh, and, and he provides through food and feeding them but also in these miracles uh, of these two, two other miracles in chapter 7, right? Compassion towards Gentiles. But do you see that he even has compassion for the Pharisees? These people that we would say, man, those guys really had it wrong. Like they really screwed up and they really had a terrible attitude and they were harsh and they were demanding and they were no fun to be around and they were, they were you know, abusive to people even, right? But Jesus has compassion on them. It says he sighed deeply in his spirit. So I believe that Jesus sees their hard-heartedness. He sees their hatred even and he's grieved at it and he wants better for them. And his invitation stays open. But it's their choice what they're going to do with it. Luke 13, 34. This gives us another picture of, of, this, uh, of the heart of Jesus in this. It says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That, that would be kind of symbolizing the Jewish people, right? O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. But you won't let me. So it's like Jesus is standing over the Pharisees saying, I want to, it's available to you. There's room at the table even for you. But you're not willing. You've got to be willing. There's, there's, there's unbelief in their hearts and that's what we're going to look at here. As Jesus has this compassion, then he moves on to the disciples. 
uh, the story moves on then to the disciples. And so they got back in the boat after this encounter with the Pharisees. And it says they got back in the boat and, they, and, and left them and they crossed to the other side of the lake. So we're back in a boat now and this is where it ends, verses 14 through 21. But the disciples had forgotten to bring any food. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. As they were crossing, uh, as they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Let's look at that together, verse 15. As they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. What does that mean? The yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. Well, yeast is often used throughout the scriptures as a symbol of evil or sinfulness. It's not always used that way, but often when it's used, it's describing sinfulness or evil. And so in this context of saying beware, that's an indication that that's what it's talking about here. And the imagery of yeast is pretty powerful because it's this small thing that you add to bread and then it has this, this, uh, this pervasive effect, right? This leavens the bread. And so it's, it's got this, this, this great effect. And if the yeast is bad, it, it'll still do the thing, but then it like spreads toxin throughout the bread and, and, that, and it's really bad for you and it would be really harmful to eat it. And so the image here of, of this yeast is, is that the, the Pharisees, he says the Pharisees and of Herod, There's this pervasive influence, this toxic flaw that can infect others. He's saying, beware of it. Beware of it. And so given the context, this flaw that he's talking about is unbelief, is the sin of unbelief. And so describing that, understanding, making sure we understand what unbelief is here, I want to be clear that unbelief is not ignorance. Like if you don't know something, that doesn't mean you don't believe it. It just means you didn't know that. And I think that's where the disciples are at in this situation. They're like, Hey, we don't have bread. What are we going to do with these people? They're just, it's not a willful, it's not a willful unbelief towards Jesus that he can't fix this. They're just not aware. They're not thinking that way that Jesus could fix this, right? But we see with the Pharisees and we see with Herod that there's willful, and this is what the unbelief, willful refusing to believe. They see the truth, but they say, I don't believe it. I won't believe it. There's a willful refusal to believe. There's a choice that's being made to not see it, to not respond to the truth. And so when we look at two kinds of unbelief, we actually have two different kinds represented with the Pharisees and, and, and Herod, as I, as I see it. And the first is, the, the unbelief of the Pharisees is seeing and not believing. They've seen Jesus do miracles, but they refuse to believe. And in fact, they explain them away, or they say they're the work of the devil. That's what's happened here, right? You've done this by the power of the devil, not by, not by the power of God. And so the, 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 the unbelief of the Pharisees is seeing the truth but refusing to believe the truth, willfully refusing to believe the truth. In John 12, 37, it says, but despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people still did not believe in him. Despite the miraculous signs, they saw, but they still didn't believe. I don't believe any miracle would have fixed the Pharisees' condition. I don't believe their problem was external. I believe their problem was internal. I think Jesus was aware of that and he was pointing that out. And that's what he's communicating to the disciples. Beware of this sin of unbelief, this seeing but refusing to believe, this condition of the heart that's, that's unhealthy, that's, un, yeah, that's, that's gonna lead to, lead to problems for them, uh, lead to lack of faith. And then the second kind of unbelief that we have is, is that of Herod and that's seeing but not trusting or not acting, not committing, right? That kind of idea. And so what Herod here, we have that, that he uh, had John the Baptist imprisoned 
And it said that it, it, let's, it says that he liked to listen to him and he brought him around to hear from him. So let's look at Mark 6.20 that talks about this. For Herod, he was a, the king of the, of the Jewish people. Herod respected John and knowing that he was a good and holy man, he protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked to John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. And so the picture we have of Herod is he like, liked hearing from John. He was even convicted when he heard John speak the truth but yet, it didn't lead to a change of action. It didn't lead to a change of his heart. He just sent John away. When he didn't want to hear what John had to say anymore, he sent him away, and then he called him back, and he listened to him. So he saw, he understood the truth, he learned the truth, he was convicted by it even, but he failed to place his trust in Jesus. He failed to follow through on the truth that John was presenting to him. And so he heard, but he didn't believe. He failed to put into action. And so when we look at these unbelief, this unbelief that Jesus is talking about here, the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod, he warns his disciples to be aware of this. And I think he does that because we have a propensity towards unbelief. As humans, we have a propensity towards unbelief. Ironically, the disciples totally miss what he's talking about in the boat, and they're like, oh, he said about the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod because we only have one loaf of bread and somebody, who, you forgot to bring the bread and we don't have any bread and what are we gonna do? And Jesus is like, are you arguing over bread? Come on, weren't you there when I fed the 5,000? Weren't you there when I fed the 4,000? Like essentially saying, guys, I've got this. Remember. And so I believe that Jesus is pointing out their unbelief here. He's helping them see, you've been with me, you've seen what I can do. You see that, I care, that I've got this, I can take care of this and I've, I, I, I have compassion on you and I love you. Will you trust me with that? So I believe he's pointing out to the disciples. You can trust me, you can believe me. And so he reminds them of all these things that he's done and reminds them of who he is and what he can do and that they can trust him. And so as we shift gears to saying, okay, what, is, what, do we, what do we take away from this? What do we look at for ourselves? Because again, it's easy to look out there and say that's the problem. It's easy to look at those Pharisees and say those guys really had it wrong. They needed to fix the, their problem. But remember, Jesus poses this, this, this warning to his disciples. This is a belief that, that tells me that, that there's something we need to look at for ourselves and we need to consider for ourselves. How might we fall into this pattern? How might we fall into this trap? And so I'd ask you, what's the status of your faith? What's the status of your faith? Have you crossed the line of faith? If you haven't, what's keeping you from it? Or maybe you have crossed the line of faith, and I'd still ask, what's the status of your faith? Because remember, this was spoken to the disciples. And so there's an ongoing need to examine ourselves to see what's going on in our hearts. And so when we talk about faith, I want to be clear what we're talking about there. There's some people out there who believe that when we talk about faith or Christian faith, it's, it's blind trust. You, it's like you put your head in the sand and just you believe no matter what everything else says or what anybody else says. That's not faith. That's blind trust. And we're not called to that. So faith is not believing without proof. It's not believing without proof. Jesus points to the disciples. He says, see, see what you've seen me do? I've proven that I, that I can take care of this. You, you, I have a proven track record with you. So it's, faith is not believing without proof. Jesus says you can trust me. You can place your confidence in me, and that's what faith is. It's trust or confidence in someone or something. Trust or confidence in someone or something, and you do that. You establish that trust and that confidence in them because you get to know them, because you've seen that they, have, that they can be trusted, that they're worthy of trust. And so when I ask what's the condition of your faith, I would say, are you trusting Jesus? Are you placing your confidence and your trust in him? 
Are you getting to know him more and more and growing in your relationship with him so that you can place greater trust and greater confidence in him? So the application here is examine your heart for areas of unbelief. Take a look at your heart and say, are there areas of unbelief? Am I falling into the habit of seeing and not believing? Or am I falling into the habit of seeing and refusing to act or to not trust? Take a look at yourself and see, is there areas of unbelief? Mark chapter 9 has a beautiful passage about this uh, that I want to close with. There's a father whose son is demon-possessed. And Jesus has sent his disciples out to do ministry, and they're, trying to, they're, they're doing great stuff, and all these, these miracles are healing people, teaching people, all this great stuff. And there's this boy that's demon-possessed, and they can't cast out the demon. They can't do it. They've been trying, and it's not happening. It's not working. And so, uh, so we have this, this, this situation where this, this guy, and then Jesus, they, they bring him to Jesus, and, 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 and he says, you know, help me. Help me. My son is demon-possessed. Would you help me? Will you do something if you can? And Jesus hears those father's words. Help me if you can. And he says to them, what do you mean if I can? Anything is possible for those who believe. And then the father has this, 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 these words. He says this. He says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. It's a prayer I've prayed so many times in my life. It's a prayer I'd invite you to pray as you examine your own heart and your own life about in this area of, of unbelief. You examine your heart and say, God, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Will you illuminate for me any areas of unbelief? This man encountered Jesus and Jesus revealed to him that there's unbelief in your heart. And the man then cried out in all honesty, I do believe, will you help me overcome my unbelief? And interestingly enough, that was enough for Jesus. He healed this man's son, cast out the demon. And the boy's life was changed. So I believe Jesus will do the same for you as you go to him in honesty and pray this prayer. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief.